Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. In 1999, journalist John Ronson stood outside the Caesar Park Hotel in Centro, Portugal. He was stunned. Fellow reporter Big Jim Tucker had told him that the Bilderberg Group, a club composed of the world's elites, would descend on the hotel en masse. However, Big Jim often had questionable intel, so Ronson hadn't quite bought his tale. And yet, at 4 o'clock, Ronson watched a veritable procession of the most powerful people in the world drive through the Caesar Park Hotel's imposing peach gates. In one car sat Umberto Agnelli, an executive of the Italian car company Fiat. With a family net worth of over $3 billion, Agnelli was practically Italian royalty. The next car boasted American icon David Rockefeller. Ronson even saw the head of the World Bank, James Wolfenson, drive onto the hotel grounds. And the cars kept rolling in. CEOs of tobacco companies, founders of pharmaceutical corporations, and leaders of both European and American banks. Ronson couldn't believe it. The world's elite had arrived to conduct their annual Bilderberg meeting, just as Big Jim said they would. As the gates clanged shut, Ronson wondered what world-changing secrets the mysterious group would discuss. If their most vocal critics were right, then the bankers, heads of state, and industry titans inside the hotel were plotting world domination. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second episode on the Bilderberg Group, 
A secret annual conference attended by the world's most powerful elites. Their purported goal is to encourage an open dialogue between Europe and North America. Last week, we explored how two world wars inspired Polish intellectual Józef Rettinger to convene the first Bilderberg Group meeting in 1954. Then we examined how journalist John Ronson stumbled into the group's crosshairs. This week, we'll cover the conclusion of John Ronson's confrontation with the Bilderberg Group. Then, we'll scrutinize some theories about the group's supposed dastardly plans to rule the world and weigh their likelihood. It's possible the Bilderberg Group really is a think tank dedicated to peace, but they also might be developing biological superweapons and plotting a global takeover. In 1999, 32-year-old journalist John Ronson felt bombarded with rumors of the Bilderberg Group, so he began to look into it more seriously. Ronson discovered that they held a conference every year in a different luxury hotel. During this annual meeting, CEOs, heads of state, and members of royalty gathered en masse to purportedly discuss international affairs. However, several Bilderberg critics didn't buy this explanation. They didn't believe that the elite group was discussing matters of diplomacy. Instead, they pointed to the armed guards and barricaded walls outside every Bilderberg meeting. They highlighted the group's powerful members and their strange insistence on secrecy. Then, Ronson's interview subjects concluded the Bilderberg group had to have nefarious aims. They accused the attendees of handpicking men like President Bill Clinton and Prime Minister Tony Blair and smoothing their rise to the top. They alleged that the Bilderberg Group even deposed antagonistic heads of state, like British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Further, they believed that Bilderberg members were striving to create a new world order, one in which they'd eradicate the middle class, impose a singular world currency, and establish a global government that dictated all facets of private life. They claimed the Bilderberg attendees desired such a world because it granted them absolute control over everyday citizens. Intrigued, Ronson traveled to Sintra, Portugal. He didn't fully buy the conspiracy theories, but he couldn't completely dismiss them either. So he met up with fellow journalist and self-proclaimed Bilderberg authority, Big Jim Tucker. But still, Ronson remained mildly skeptical about the whole thing, until he and Big Jim Tucker were tailed. For three hours, a green Lancia followed their rental car, driving all the way back to their hotel. It was impossible to say, but Ronson believed that their tail had been sent by the Bilderberg Group. It stayed right behind them as Ronson and Big Jim pulled into the hotel parking lot and slowed to a stop. Then, as Ronson watched, the door to the green Lancia clicked open to reveal a man in a dark suit. He was in his 30s and had closely cropped hair. His relative youth likely did nothing to assuage Ronson's fears. Nevertheless, Ronson and Big Jim stepped out of their car. Perhaps they believed the dark-suited man would approach them. He did no such thing. Instead, he stood behind a tree and peeked around it to watch them. Ronson was unnerved by this development, but it had the opposite effect on Big Jim. As a horrified Ronson watched, Big Jim taunted the man behind the tree, crowing, I can see you, peekaboo. 
Ronson tried to get him to stop, but Big Jim upped the ante. The big-boned journalist began performing a kind of ballet for the impassive agent behind the tree. Then, just as abruptly as he'd begun his bizarre dance, Big Jim stilled. He asked Ronson, Am I being paranoid, or did Bilderberg set a trap for us? Big Jim recapped the events of the trip. He and Ronson had gone to the Caesar Park Hotel, the supposed location of the Bilderberg Group's next meeting. They'd watched the hotel get shut down. The next day, they'd been lured back, despite the fact that all the other occupants had been cleared out. Big Jim claimed that they were led into the empty hotel just so the Bilderberg Group's agent could tail them back home. The implications made Ronson's mind spin. Could the Bilderberg Group really have shut down an entire hotel just to spring a trap? And to what end? What did the man waiting behind the tree plan to do to them? Seeing no other recourse, he and Big Jim decided to wait and see what the dark-suited man would do. However, Big Jim soon tired of waiting outside, so he went back to his room. As for Ronson, he sat by the pool in tense anticipation, his eyes still fixed on the man behind the tree. Ronson jumped as his mobile phone rang. It was Sandra from the British Embassy. Ronson had called her hours earlier to inform her that he and Big Jim were being tailed by the Bilderberg Group. Now, Sandra's voice was much brighter than when they'd last spoken. She told Ronson that she had great news. She contacted the Bilderberg Group at their Caesar Park Hotel office, and they assured her that they weren't following him. Ronson made furtive eye contact with his tail and hissed that he was being followed. The culprit was blatantly standing by a tree watching him. Sandra immediately switched tactics. She retorted that Ronson should take comfort in the fact that he knew he was being followed. If the person tailing him was truly dangerous, Ronson wouldn't be aware of their presence at all. She finished by telling Ronson that the Bilderberg group likely meant no harm. They probably just wanted to intimidate him. Her explanation gave Ronson no comfort. It just didn't make sense that elites from a supposedly run-of-the-mill conference would set out to intimidate anyone. Ronson never specified how he got away from the man behind the tree. But two hours later, he and Big Jim met up in a nearby bar. Fortunately, the agent who'd waited behind the tree was nowhere in sight. Unfortunately, shortly after Ronson and Big Jim settled at their table, two men in black suits entered the establishment. Both the men in dark suits held brochures up to their faces, but Ronson had the distinct impression that they were only pretending to read. He mentioned this to Big Jim, but Jim wasn't overly concerned. He had a plan. According to Ronson's book, Them, Big Jim told him, Let's walk out of the bar together. When we get within earshot of the black-suited men, I say, I'm going to meet my Bilderberg contact at the tiny bar. You say, shh. Say it urgently, as if you don't want them to overhear. Feed them disinformation. Ronson was opposed to the obvious gambit, but that didn't stop Big Jim. The moment the two stepped close to the men in black suits, Big Jim shouted out that he was going to meet his Bilderberg contact. Horrified, Ronson refused to play along. He silently left the bar alone. Fortunately, when they met up later that night, both men confirmed that they hadn't been followed, so far as they knew. 
But Big Jim's actions were giving Ronson doubts about his integrity. These misgivings were exacerbated the next morning. Ronson found Big Jim working on an article for his publication, The Spotlight. When he read Big Jim's account of the past couple of days, Ronson was appalled. He noted several areas where Jim had either greatly exaggerated or made things up whole cloth. Ronson even read a section in which he had been misquoted. These acts of creative journalism likely made Ronson wonder what else Big Jim was making up. Ronson had largely come to Portugal off the strength of Big Jim's word. Now he had to wonder if the Bilderberg Group would actually arrive at the hotel the next day, as Big Jim had claimed. Ronson decided to do some external research. He perused the pages of Portuguese newspapers to see if he could find any mention of an upcoming meeting. He was stunned when he found exactly what he was looking for. In a tiny English-language newspaper called The Weekly News, a stark headline read, As speculation on the internet runs rife, the news checks it out, and it does seem that secret world government group is meeting here. There it was, in plain black and white. Relieved that he had something else to go on besides Big Jim's word, Ronson called the article's author and set up a meeting. The weekly news was run by Paul Luckman, a British expatriate in southern Portugal. Luckman wasn't a professional journalist. The newspaper was just a hobby that he ran with his wife and a couple of friends from his church. It had a modest circulation of 8,000 readers. But Luckman wasn't the only person, outside of Big Jim, reporting on the upcoming Bilderberg meeting. Ronson wasn't going to split hairs about Luckman's small circulation and lack of journalistic qualifications. So after agreeing on a time, Ronson arrived in Luckman's office with Big Jim in tow. Ronson had brought the other man because Luckman was a fan of Big Jim's articles for the spotlight. After exchanging greetings, the trio began to discuss the Bilderberg Group. Eager to contribute his theories, Luckman said, the Book of Revelation speaks of a one-world order, one financial order, a one-world religion. There'll be a sense of disorder, of children not respecting their parents, and a very powerful group will form. So it does all fit together. Ronson was taken aback. It really sounded like Luckman was suggesting that the Bilderberg Group was the Antichrist. Ronson's experiences from the past few days had caused him to grow wary of the group, even suspicious. However, he wasn't ready to believe that the group was literally Satan in the flesh. Which meant Luckman's statements were disappointing. Ronson had met with Luckman in the hopes that he would dispel some of his doubts. Instead, Luckman's bizarre words likely made Ronson question himself and his trip to Portugal even more. This made Ronson wonder whether the world's most powerful elites would really converge at the Caesar Park Hotel the next day. Maybe this was all just an elaborate hoax. Despite his doubts, John Ronson followed through with his original plan. On June 3, 1999, the first day of the supposed Bilderberg meeting, 32-year-old John Ronson stood outside the gates of the Caesar Park Hotel. Big Jim and two journalists from the Weekly News offices stood with him. At 4 p.m., taxis and luxury town cars began rolling in. As Ronson peered into their windows, he was stunned to note that the inhabitants were indeed some of the most powerful men in the world. The Bilderberg meeting had begun. And if Big Jim and Luckman were right about that, which of their other conspiracy theories would prove true? 
Coming up, John Ronson digs deeper into the Bilderberg Group. Now, back to the story. In June 1999, 32-year-old John Ronson watched the esteemed members of the Bilderberg Group drive into the Caesar Park Hotel. After the gates clanged shut behind the motorcade of elites, Ronson and Big Jim went back to their hotel to talk logistics. However, when Ronson proposed breaking into the Caesar Park at midnight, Big Jim balked. He told Ronson that unfortunately their midnight penetration of the Caesar Park Hotel would have to be canceled. When Ronson pushed back, Big Jim refused. He claimed that the locals were terrified of the Bilderberg group, so much so that Big Jim had been unable to bribe anyone to act as their guide. Ronson was skeptical. He figured that Big Jim canceled the midnight penetration because physically the out-of-shape, chain-smoking journalist just wasn't up to the task. Disappointed, Ronson retired to his room. There, he received an urgent call from Fred, one of the weekly news reporters who joined Big Jim and Ronson at the gates of Caesar Park Hotel. Fred asked Ronson to meet him at the hotel pool, and he warned Ronson not to bring Big Jim with him. Intrigued, Ronson met with Fred. Agitated, Fred told Ronson he discovered some disturbing news about Big Jim. Fred believed that the spotlight was an anti-Semitic publication. By that same token, he thought that Big Jim, one of the publication's most senior writers, might be a, quote, neo-Nazi. Then, Fred dropped his most alarming conclusion. He suspected that Big Jim's Bilderberg theories were largely a front for his anti-Semitic leanings. Few of the members of the Bilderberg group were actually Jewish, but neo-Nazis frequently used phrases like international banker as a code word for Jewish person. And the charges Big Jim laid against the Bilderberg group closely mirrored a lot of anti-Semitic propaganda. Ronson was stunned. Sure, Big Jim had said some strange, off-color things, but nothing that would make Ronson believe he was a neo-Nazi. Furthermore, Ronson was Jewish, so the idea that he might have been chasing after an anti-Semitic hoax was extremely alarming. Fortunately, the midnight penetration had been canceled, and since there was no other way for Ronson to break into the heavily guarded Caesar Park Hotel, he didn't have a reason to stay in Portugal with Big Jim. So Ronson flew back to New York City. There, he made an appointment with Gail Gans, an employee at the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL is an international non-governmental organization that seeks to combat extremism and anti-Semitism around the globe. Gail, the director of the League's Civil Rights Information Center, doubled down on Fred's assertions, saying, the spotlight is the leading anti-Semitic hate propaganda newspaper in America. To back up her statement, Gail handed Ronson a large dossier that the ADL had compiled on Big Jim and the Spotlight. According to his book, Them, Ronson found articles denying the Holocaust, tributes to neo-Nazi skinheads, and books written by Spotlight editors dedicated to Adolf Hitler. Ronson was stunned. Big Jim certainly wasn't who he claimed to be. But that didn't necessarily mean everything Big Jim had said about the Bilderberg group was completely spurious. So he asked Gail her thoughts on the elusive group of global elites. Gail laughed. She was familiar with the Bilderberg group. She claimed that they were just decent, upstanding citizens who wanted to discuss world affairs in private. 
Gale rejected all claims of a coordinated press blackout. Of course, the media wasn't rushing to cover some boring international conference. After all, she said, David Rockefeller was hardly Michael Jordan. And yet, even after all of Gale's credible explanations, Ronson couldn't put the Bilderberg group out of his mind. Maybe Big Jim was anti-Semitic. Maybe his Bilderberg group stories were a subtle way of disparaging Jewish people. But Ronson had discussed the group with a lot of people on both sides of the political spectrum. They couldn't all be anti-Semitic, especially since a cursory glance at the Bilderberg group attendees list revealed that the great majority of its members weren't even Jewish. Furthermore, Ronson had been followed in Portugal. If the members of the Bilderberg group were just good citizens, as Gale claimed, they wouldn't need to intimidate a journalist. Finally, there is the secrecy of it all. Why the emptied out hotels, the barricaded gates, the heavy security? Why go to all that trouble if they had nothing to hide? Ronson decided to stay on the Bilderberg story, hoping to discover what transpired in the group's secretive meetings. He contacted dozens of alleged Bilderberg members. None of them returned his inquiries. The closest he could get was David Rockefeller's press secretary, who eventually agreed to talk with Ronson on the phone. Since the press secretary's name has never been released, for this episode, we'll call him Marcus. All Marcus would say on the phone was that Rockefeller was sick of all the conspiracy theories. He didn't understand why people were so suspicious of the group. It was nothing more than a sort of global think tank. After that call, Ronson's Bilderberg trail went cold. For the rest of 1999 and all of 2000, no one else responded to any of his many inquiries. But finally, after a year and a half of silence, Ronson received a call from Dennis Healy one of the leading members of the Bilderberg Group's steering committee. He invited Ronson over to his office so that the two could converse in person. In the lead up to his meeting with Healy, Ronson made sure everyone he'd already contacted knew that a leading member of the Bilderberg Group had agreed to speak with him. As he'd hoped, this information made other Bilderberg attendees more forthcoming. He began booking interview after interview, and eventually, Ronson gained a better understanding of how the meetings worked. First, Ronson learned that the Bilderberg Group had an office in the Netherlands, where they chose which countries would host the annual events. Bilderberg members in the chosen countries hated being saddled with this responsibility. It meant they needed to raise enough money to close out a luxury hotel for four days. In addition, they'd have to pay for security, food, and transportation. To fundraise, the chosen members reached out to corporations that were friendly to Bilderberg. Those companies included Xerox, Heinz, Italy's car manufacturer Fiat, Britain's financial giant Barclays, and Finland's telecommunications behemoth Nokia. They donated the significant funds needed to put on the annual events. Second, Ronson learned that the Steering Committee had grown since it was founded. Originally, it was only Prince Bernard and Yusuf Rettinger. Now the entity boasted members from 18 countries in Europe and the Americas who served in pairs. This meant that the steering committee had a little over 30 members in total. This group of elites decided who to invite to the meetings every year. Exclusive and rare, Bilderberg invitations were highly coveted, but they couldn't be bought, not for any amount. Ronson also learned what happened at the meetings themselves. According to his contacts, the three-day conferences boasted two sessions each morning and two more each afternoon. 
except Saturday, when sessions took place in the evening so attendees could play golf during the day. Perhaps one of the most interesting details Ronson gleaned was that the attendees were required to speak at the conference. They weren't allowed to just sit there listening to the opinions of others. They had to offer their own. Maybe this was a form of mutually assured destruction. Members were less likely to divulge what others had said, knowing that their statements could be released in kind. Interview after interview confirmed that the Bilderberg Group was elite, well-funded, and secretive. But Ronson still didn't have a clear picture of what they did. With only a rough understanding of how the meetings functioned, Ronson set out to conduct his biggest interview yet. Bilderberg Steering Committee member Dennis Healy. During their meeting, Healy largely directed the tenor of the conversation, divulging only the details that he felt comfortable releasing. About the larger purpose of Bilderberg, Healy said, Politics should involve people who aren't politicians. We make a point of inviting younger politicians who are rising to bring them together with financiers and industrialists who offer them wise words. It increases the chance of having a sensible global policy. In addition, Healy reiterated the club's party line. He said that Bilderberg was created as a bulwark against senseless war and destruction. However, when Ronson probed him about the group's culture of secrecy, Healy snapped, saying, We aren't secret, we're private. Nobody is going to speak freely if they're going to be quoted by ambitious and prurient journalists like you, who think it'll help your career to attack something you have no knowledge of. With those barbed words, Healy dismissed Ronson from his office. The interview was over. John Bronson had been able to extract more information from Bilderberg attendees than any other journalist before him. But even he'd hit a wall asking the most pertinent question, why all the secrecy? What could they possibly be hiding? And were the Bilderbergs really puppet masters who controlled the world? Coming up, theories about the true purpose of the Bilderberg Group. Now back to the story. In 2001, 34-year-old reporter John Ronson scored an interview with Bilderberg Group Steering Committee member Dennis Healy. Though Healy was forthcoming on some matters, he defended the Bilderberg Group's commitment to privacy. He insisted that it was necessary to ensure open communication between attendees. This explanation might have sufficed prior to the 2000s, when few people were aware of the Bilderberg Group. But as journalists like Ronson and Big Jim Tucker called attention to the secret conferences, public awareness grew and conspiracy theories soon followed. The most popular was the charge that the Bilderberg Group single-handedly decided who would rule the world's most powerful countries. This allegation was based on the fact that several former attendees of the Bilderberg meetings went on to become heads of state. For example, Tony Blair. In 1993, Blair was just another member of the UK's House of Commons. Then, the steering committee invited him to a Bilderberg conference. One year later, Blair was elected leader of the Labour Party. Three years after that, he ascended to the role of Prime Minister. Likewise, in 2005, Angela Merkel attended a Bilderberg conference. Months later, she was elected chancellor, the highest position in Germany's government. She still holds the title as of this recording. 
And the allegations suggest that the Bilderberg Group is involved in American politics too, and they have been for decades. In 1991, Bill Clinton was a little-known governor of Arkansas when he was invited to attend his first Bilderberg meeting. Just one year later, his political fortunes dramatically changed when he became the Democratic presidential nominee. Later that year, Bill Clinton was elected the president of the United States. However, people who were suspicious of the Bilderberg conferences insisted Bill Clinton wasn't elected at least not through a truly democratic process. They believed other Bilderberg attendees used their influence to win him the presidency. Upon closer scrutiny, however, this theory doesn't hold up. First, Bilderberg attendees are chosen by a steering committee made up of world elites and people in power. As the old saying goes, it takes one to know one. It could be that the Bilderberg Group's members are particularly adept at spotting young politicians who will go on to be successful. While Clinton was merely a governor of Arkansas, he was also a Rhodes Scholar and a Yale Law graduate. Furthermore, even in 1991, he was known as a political prodigy with a granular understanding of policy and great oratorical skills. Given Clinton's track record, it's not surprising the Bilderberg Steering Committee deemed him worthy of an invite. By that same token, it's also not surprising that Clinton went on to be successful after the meeting. Chances are he would have been successful even if he had not attended. There's another reason why the charge that Bilderberg members handpick future world leaders doesn't make sense. Namely, there have been several attendees of the conferences who haven't gone on to become world leaders. Hillary Clinton was rumored to have attended the 1997 Bilderberg Conference. However, she went on to lose the Democratic nomination to Barack Obama in 2008 and the presidential election in 2016. But king-making allegations weren't the only accusations leveled against the Bilderberg Group. Conspiracy theorists also believed that the club removed heads of state who didn't submit to their demands. Some suggest the Bilderbergs pressured Margaret Thatcher to step down as Britain's prime minister in 1990. Big Jim Tucker championed the Margaret Thatcher charge. According to him, Bilderberg attendees disliked Thatcher because she refused to allow Britain to join the EU. He claimed that the main agenda item of Bilderberg's 1989 meeting was to oust her from the prime ministership. Big Jim asserted he'd received confirmation of this from Thatcher herself. He allegedly walked up to her at a party and asked, how does it feel to have been denounced by those Bilderberg boys? According to Big Jim, Thatcher responded that she considered it a great honor to have been rejected by Bilderberg. However, in a meeting with John Ronson in 2001, an anonymous Bilderberg member disputed this claim. According to this member, Margaret Thatcher actually attended a Bilderberg meeting in 1975 after she delivered a particularly rousing speech, David Rockefeller, Henry Kissinger, and the other Americans in attendance practically fell in love with her. They flew Thatcher to the United States and introduced her to everyone who was anyone. This disclosure runs completely counter to Big Jim's claims that Bilderberg members hated Thatcher and set out to destroy her. But even though popular conspiracy theories about the group lack evidence, they've continued to persist. And by 2013, suspicions about the mysterious club had entered the mainstream. 
Bilderberg critics staged a festival across the street from the group's 2013 conference in Watford, England. For this anti-Bilderberg event, the festival's organizers set up a campsite complete with tents and security. 2,000 attendees showed up. These participants had come to protest the Bilderberg meeting next door and to listen to speakers like Alex Jones. A notorious and dangerous conspiracy theorist, Jones was known for claiming that the government had staged the Oklahoma City bombing, that they controlled the weather, and most upsetting of all, that the Sandy Hook tragedy was a hoax. Despite the spurious nature of his claims, or perhaps because of them, Alex Jones was chosen to be the event's keynote speaker. On the stage, Jones exclaimed, we're assaulting the Bilderberg group with the searing light of publicity that will burn them up like Count Dracula. We are exposing the puppet masters. After that incendiary opening, Jones launched into one of the more bizarre charges against the group, saying, they might kill me for telling you this, but they've been putting out cancer viruses. That's why there are hundreds of new cancers that never existed. That's why 30 years ago, doctors would fly across the country to see a child with cancer. Now I can walk out my front door and see children with cancer playing in the playground anytime I go there, with their chemotherapy roach poison injectors hooked up to them. At this incomprehensible claim, the crowd cheered. Former British broadcaster and conspiracy theorist David Icke also spoke at the festival. Ike, like Jones, was a known fantasist. In the past, he'd claimed to be the son of God. At the festival, he opened his remarks by exclaiming to the heavens, and the people gathered to say, enough. After a few cheers, Ike accused the Bilderberg group of being evil. He said that they'd used their secretive ways to control the world. This accusation was tame in comparison to some of the other things Ike had said about the Bilderberg group. In the past, he'd claimed that members were giant extraterrestrial lizards disguised as humans. Accusations like this abounded among the festival's speakers and its attendees. Vice journalist Matt Shea spoke to several festival goers who believed that Bilderberg members were poisoning the water supply with fluoride so that they could mind control the masses. Susie Majou, a journalist for The Independent, interviewed other festival goers who feared that the Bilderberg Group planned to reduce the world's population by 90%, thus instigating a new global dark age. While these fears were largely sincere, they were also easy to debunk. First, none of these conspiracy theories offer a credible motive for the Bilderberg Group. And it's difficult to see what CEOs and world leaders could possibly gain from infecting children with cancer and poisoning people with fluoride. As to the claims of Bilderberg attendees secretly being lizards, those are obviously completely baseless. And of course, Alex Jones and David Icke are known to spread harmful rhetoric. We can't condone anything either man has stated. While there are a lot of unfounded conspiracy theories about the group, the allegations are based on legitimate fears. The Bilderberg members aren't giant lizards, but that doesn't make them harmless. The Bilderberg group unites members of the political elite with their peers from the private sector. These attendees come from various countries around the world and fall on both sides of the political spectrum. This means that the main thing the members of this group have in common is their ability to amass huge amounts of wealth. 
Since their money and their elite status is the strongest thing that binds them together, it seems reasonable to suggest that their discussions likely revolve around ways to preserve their power. What lengths are the members of the Bilderberg Group willing to go to in the pursuit of profits and the preservation of their already significant holdings? Well, the group's insistence on privacy suggests that everyday citizens might not like the answers to that question. Further, their negative assertions about journalists who seek out those answers are pretty hypocritical. Bilderberg members accuse reporters of being self-serving careerists, but their conferences are all about the attendees' self-interest. They played down the importance of their meetings, claiming that they're nothing more than boring policy discussions. And yet, as heads of state and leaders of multinational corporations, the second thing the members of this group have in common is a lack of time. It's their most valuable commodity. It's unlikely then that they would waste it on some trivial conference. Bilderberg members wouldn't take three days out of their busy schedules to attend these meetings if they weren't getting something valuable. Their motivations for going to the annual conferences are at least as self-interested as those of the journalists who seek to report on them. Further, because Bilderberg members are far more powerful than any journalist, the consequences of their potentially selfish desires are much graver. Ordinary people have voted for Bilderberg members who also happen to be government officials. Others have invested in companies owned by Bilderberg corporate executives. Those people have a right to know exactly what is discussed inside the walls of those luxury hotels. Bilderberg members might not be lizard people or servants of the Antichrist, but their reach still gives them an immense amount of power. They don't need secret viruses or mind control powers to shape the world to their liking. And perhaps that's the scariest secret of all. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the Bilderberg Group, amongst the many sources we used, we found John Ronson's book, Them, Adventures with Extremists, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Abiyageli Adimegu, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 